In this episode, I will be reading from some of the year in review content that I wrote up and put out on the China Talk newsletter, which you can find at chinatalk.media. 2022 was not an easy year to be a China analyst. It was painful to watch from afar this year's lockdowns and protests. The 20th Party Congress gave us the worst of all possible outcomes for China's domestic governance trajectory. The buildup over Pelosi's Taiwan visit and seeming normalization of discussions about war in both Washington and Beijing was troubling, to say the least. I'm pessimistic U.S.-China relations will hit an inflection point anytime soon. Covering these storylines on China Talk, week after week after week, took a toll. I recently read a book by an American historian of Spain who started studying the country in the 1950s. In the early years of his career, American academics held an essential place in the discussion, as Spanish scholars under Franco couldn't safely write about contemporary issues. But by the 1980s, he wrote, the era had passed in which foreign Hispanists might play a dominant role in the historiography dealing with contemporary Spain, given the democratization of the country and great expansion of research and publication by Spanish historians, more interested in contemporary history than any other period. I could not do the work I do without my U.S. passport living in the United States. I'm thankful I live in a country where I don't have to look over my shoulder writing about politics and technology and look forward to the day when my coverage gets blown out of the water by Chinese nationals able to write without second-guessing themselves. But until then, China Talk's coverage will remain essential in informing the global conversation. I'm deeply grateful for all of your support that makes this work possible. China now occupies a leading place in the global China discussion. We dive deep, surfacing the best thinking on China and U.S. technology policy and giving it space to breathe through the podcast and newsletter. In turn, China supplies critical context for policymakers, journalists, academics, students, and business leaders. China Talk coverage today is more important than ever. To build off this past year's momentum, I'm hoping to devote more of my time and keep growing the team to increase the scope and depth of China Talk's coverage in 2023. However, this can't happen without more financial support. So please consider, number one, upgrading to a paid subscription via Substack at Chinatalk.media. Subscribers receive access to an ad-free podcast feed, subscriber-exclusive chat within the Substack app, my eternal gratitude, and starting this year, exclusive paywalled content. Number two, telling one person you know to check out Chinatalk. Newsletters and podcasts don't go viral like YouTube channels. People forwarding the podcast and the newsletter is the main way that I grow. And I have to believe that you, loyal China Talk reader, have at least one other person in your life who would enjoy this podcast. So just next time you see them, take their phone, open Spotify, open iTunes, and subscribe them to it. Pick a few shows that you think they'd like and download it for them. Lastly, number three, consider advertising on China Talk. Next year, we'll be starting to incorporate more native advertising, co-creating sponsored content, and potentially where the fit is right, some paid interviews. The China Talk audience is as influential as it gets. Thousands of senior government officials and business leaders rely on China Talk to inform their decision-making. From key leadership in the White House to senior appointees, career officials at every relevant U.S. agency, and senior congressional staff, China Talk readers literally write the policies that govern Americans' relations with and response to China. And it's not just the U.S. Half of the podcast listenership is abroad, with policymakers in capitals and embassies around the world regularly engaging with the platform. China Talk boasts deep readership in C-suites and executive ranks at Fortune 500 companies. 
inside the world's largest sovereign wealth and hedge funds, as well as leading VC and PE investors. China Talk also drives news coverage. For over a 1,000 journalists worldwide, China Talk is a must-read. The newsletter boasts over 100 active subscribers just from the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and FT alone. Lastly, we're launching a job board, a fantastic way to help your organization tap into China Talk's elite talent pool with deep expertise in China and technology policy. If this is an audience you're interested in reaching, reach out for a pitch deck and to start a conversation. China Talk has recently brought on an experienced partnerships development professional who will be able to help bring your organization's message to our global audience of policymakers, business executives, and key stakeholders in the China policy space. So, thanks. Number one, paid subscription. Number two, tell your friends. Number three, consider buying some ads. Feel free to reach out to me directly at jordan at chinatalk.media. So now I'm going to go into a little bit of a recap of what uh, we did up this past year on China Talk, and there are links to everything I referenced that you can see in the newsletter. So China Talk's coverage of the U.S. export controls was some of the best on the internet. After the regs dropped, I hosted an emergency podcast with former BIS official Kevin Wolf, broke news about the impacts of U.S. persons clauses on the Chinese semiconductor ecosystem, assembled a roundtable with the Chips Avengers, translated elite Chinese responses to the policy, and then wrote what I think is the defining piece on the long-term implications of these actions for Noema. Beyond just export controls, I expanded coverage to the full gambit of America's competitive response to China. That included extensive coverage of the Chips Act and broader semiconductor industry, efforts to reform the State Department, and the analytical holes that underlay the basis for much of America's policy towards China and technology. China Talk featured deep coverage of the white paper movement. I wrote a column the weekend of the protest, put out an interview with Ling Li on how the CCP would react, also translated viral social media posts and ran a fantastic guest column by the new substack Munching Rhino Sausage. The best podcast I've recorded in years was with Paul Kennedy sharing memories of the late historian Jonathan Spence. My other gem this year was my discussion with artist Arnold Chang and Met curator Joseph Shire Dahlberg on how Chinese landscape paintings survived the 20th century. The weekend following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I recorded seven shows in two days devoting the ad revenue to charity. The one episode most worth revisiting is my show with Adam Tooze and Matt Klein, which I think really captured the fear of the moment. Blown away by the progress in diffusion and large language models over the past few months, I've added more AI coverage to the mix as I try to grapple with what technology means for US-China and society more broadly. I've put out one show so far on the military implications of AI, another on AI and creativity, and have five shows in the tank you'll be hearing in the coming weeks, featuring everyone from think tankers to rabbis meditating on what change AI might bring. My deepest piece of public writing this year was a submission for Open Philanthropy's Cause Exploration Prize entitled War Between the U.S. and China, a case study for epistemic challenges around China-related catastrophic risk. In this essay, I argued for renewed investment in China studies as a way to reduce catastrophic risk, or for that matter, increase U.S. competitiveness. I collected my advice for aspiring China analysts in a post entitled China Policy, an Early Career Guide, and put out a piece in Foreign Policy elaborating on the NATO for Trade theme called Only a Financial NATO Can Win an Economic War. The newsletter also ran fantastic guest columns on smart cities, the 20th Party Congress, China's masculinity, and the lessons China took from the USSR's fall. We also put out translations of Party Congress analysis, a leading CCP scientist on China's S&T failings, as well as roundups on elite responses to the midterms and export controls. So sign up to the newsletter if you haven't already. It's free. Now talking a little bit about 
China Talk's growth. We had a pretty flat first half of the year, but newsy coverage and tweet threads drove the free subscriber count from 13,000 in September for the newsletter to 19,762 as of January 5th. So close to 20,000. Um, interestingly, the podcast has remained kind of flat in the 10 to 12,000 downloads per episode range. So please tell a friend. So after the commercial break, which if you have a paid subscription, you will not be bothered with. I'm going to read from some posts I put out on the Substack about my favorite books and other sort of media and content I consumed over the past year. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. First up, some China books. Never Turn Back, China and the Forbidden History of the 1980s by Julian Gewurz, which came out this past year. So few books that really read party sources come out every year that I feel obligated to devour each one, regardless of the writing quality. But Gewurz, who moonlights as a poet, can really write. Particularly in the second half of this one, I was brought to tears by his retelling of the prospects of political reform in the 1980s. While reading, I couldn't help myself from drawing up a list of questions for the China Talk interview that I can't do right now with him because he's serving in the administration. So I'm um, looking forward to have him on at some point. Um, another one that I really enjoyed was Innovate to Dominate, The Rise of the Chinese Techno Security State by Timing Chung, which also came out in 2022. Chung's book did real yeoman's work reading through reams of CCP planning documents around technology and national security. I'm still left wondering, particularly on the national security side, just how much can be divined from Xi's speeches and party documents. Another real masterwork was Stalin and the Bomb, Soviet Union and Atomic Energy by David Holloway, which came out in 1996. It was a masterful reading of source material, coupled with thoughtful analysis of the social dynamics between Stalin and his scientists, and maybe slightly more pessimistic on China's science and technology future, given just how potentially distorting authoritarian systems can be. China, of course, has made enormous progress since the days of Maoist science, but this sort of thing will necessarily be lurking in the background. I'm looking forward to having him on in uh, later in January. Another real highlight was getting into James Glick. I read Isaac Newton and The Information this past year, both of which just had breathtaking writing about technology. Another real treat was Men, Machines, and Modern Times by Elting Morrison, um, which alongside beautiful writing uh, made me really rethink how bureaucracies respond to technological change. The Chip War by Chris Miller, which came out in 2022. I particularly enjoyed the history forward chapters and the international component of how some countries like Taiwan and Japan grok chips while the USSR just couldn't cut it. Another kind of out of left field treat was Moorish Spain by Richard Fletcher. There was a really fantastic chapter in there about um, the party kings, uh, which was a kind of like, like warring states, you know, 15... 500s BC ancient Greek vibes where all these different city-states were run by these kings who were just like drinking and fighting each other all the time. Another kind of random one I want to highlight for you guys is Taylor King, The Rise and Fall of the Anabaptist King Kingdom of Munster by Anthony Archer, which came out in 99. Um, a story of a 
of a religious cult, which um, kind of has like Taiping Kingdom vibes, and it ends just as badly for them as it did for the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom. Um, and there are lots of other books. Um, check out my list on China Talk of Media and let me know what you enjoyed this year. Lastly, I wrote a post on my media diet of like the movies, TV shows, and video games I enjoyed this past year, which I'll just read some excerpts for. Um, Chinese TV this year was absolutely brutal. Um, I watched the first few episodes of every modern drama in the Doban top 10 rankings and like actually none of them I can recommend. Um, after a few good years in like 2019 and 2020, things have really fallen off a cliff for uh, the state of Chinese modern drama. The one that was like sort of okay was called The Reset, um, which was a sort of like off brand Black Mirror time loop miniseries. Um, and if you're a lawyer or like really into like legal procedurals, the show called Draw the Line, um, you might get a kick out of, I don't know, I gave it a 6.1. In terms of Western TV, I found Station Eleven and Andor just equally breathtaking. Um, Station, 11 in, Station Eleven in particular, I feel like is the best piece of contemporary American culture I've consumed since Hamilton and like made me appreciate life and my loved ones more, um, which, you know, you can't really ask more from art, I guess. Um, Tokyo Vice, I thought was like, okay, but kind of funny, particularly in the first few episodes where it was, you know, pitch perfect at capturing the experience of like a white guy showing up in Asia. Um, the, the, the show sort of fell off the rails and became a little too Hollywood and crazy, but, um, the sort of scene setting he did and the experience of just like, you know, wanting to fit in and studying the language and whatnot, I thought was, um, was particularly good. So maybe watch like the pilot in the first two, um, Chinese movies were also really bad. Um, so bad that during the protest in Shanghai, people were asking, actually saying like, or whatever, like, I want better movies. Um, one that was, like, pretty sad was Zhang Yimua did a, a war movie called Sniper, which was just about, like, the Korean War, which is just, like, not a good movie. He's a very creative person. He should be doing better things with his life. Um, the one I think I can recommend to most people is called The Myth of Love in English, Ai Ching Shenhua. And... Um, it, it's set in Shanghai, largely in Shanghai, largely in dialect. And it's this kind of like lovely multi-generational story, I think, that had a, you know, more soul than like basically any other movie to come out of China this year. And lastly, video games. I got kind of into chess this year. Um, I climbed all the way up from 700 to 950. Um, the part I really like at chess at my level is that winning a 10-minute rapid game feels like it almost has nothing to do with whether we're playing a line I studied and comes down almost entirely to how calm and attentive I am in the moment. I think it's like way better than meditation for focus training. And the other cool thing it taught me is just how much my thinking can deteriorate under time constraints. Elden Ring was like kind of a spiritual experience as well. Um, it was, I feel like it is the perfect gaming experience that is probably not going to be topped for the pre-VR paradigm um getting covid and various flus for what felt like two straight months in the spring left me with a few dozen hours to lie in bed and get lost in this world one day i went to the met museum after a few hours of playing and thought 
like, actually, Elden Ring is more beautiful and striking than half of the landscapes on the wall. Um, there have been few experiences in my life quite as satisfying as beating an Elden Ring boss on, like, the seventh or eighth try. And I felt like something weirdly clicked in my brain where a few times in other real-life contexts this year, instead of sort of running into a wall, trying to do the same thing over and over again, my, like, let's beat a boss creatively Elden Ring brain turned on, and I ended up finding some lateral solution to a problem. Even if you're not a big video game person, I'd really encourage you to try to experience the game for yourself. So in the newsletter, which you guys can check out, I also write about some podcasts that I found and really liked and my favorite YouTube videos of the year. All right, that's all I got. Thanks so much. Have a happy new year. Morning, the summer I wake up in the morning.